Welcome to a special session of the Backyard Professor Live. This is kind of an unannounced thing because I've been thinking about this all day and I have something else to say and I think it's worth repeating it. Let me get this further away so that you don't hear me yelling even though I am yelling. Welcome everybody. Good to see you all. All right. Kenneth Gray, welcome. Yin Ma Autumn 6, <laughs> Kenny Gray and Mark Fuentes, Ruth Smart, how you doing? Welcome, everybody. Uh, tonight, I wanted to do a uh, kind of an extra session, and it, it was unintended. It, it's unannounced, and so this is kind of a surprise, but people can watch the video as well as if you do happen to catch this. Uh, I apologize for not announcing it earlier. I just made a split decision off the cuff. And so I have something that I consider to be uh, quite fascinating. And there have been some reactions out there in the Mormon apologetic world that I believe are worth reviewing and assessing why. I think that these reactions give us a spectacular indication of the state of affairs in the Mormon apologetic world. And those of you who watched Mormonism live last night on The Apologist and the excellent analysis of The Apologetic, I'm not going to deal with that at all. Uh, I have something uh, a little bit different angle that I want to share. Technically, it's not new news, but it is news worth repeating with a new twist, I believe, in my opinion. Alisa, how are you? Mark Crispin, good to see you. Patty Cake, yes, a surprise performance. Yes, Patty Cake, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to just start off, there's enough of us here that I'm going to say outright that I can't help but think that there has been a major seismic shift in the Mormon apologetic world. And I mean, of course, <laughs> the internet brought that shift on without question. However, there are what YouTube has been able to accomplish that even actual revelation has not been able to accomplish is truly stunning. Almost miraculous, did I hear you say? Aha! <laughs> In some respects, perhaps. Perhaps not. But uh, Dan Vogel recently let us in on a secret that even he did not know about, that he was not aware about. I mean, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't reading his email very carefully, and he just happened to pop into his email, and he noticed that, well, over a month ago, now I'm, I'm assuming he just instantly put this out there because it was a, a very pleasant shock and a surprise to him as well. But uh, he read in his email that a month ago, now that would have made it in April, that would have been around uh, general conference time. Interesting time for FAIR to complain to YouTube. And what they said is this guy, Dan Vogel, has stolen our video interview of John Gee. And he's done this illegally, and we demand that you take that video down. And Vogel was completely oblivious to this. Didn't matter. Now, 
It's interesting that just during this time is when I was exploring these uh, vogel responses to both John Gee and Carrie Moulstein. Uh, looks like we're getting a few more people in. Welcome, everybody. Mormon neurodivergence. Welcome. All at JC, good to see you again. Welcome. Ruth Smart, thank you for showing up. So Vogel got this notice from YouTube that the request had been made that he have his video removed. YouTube, apparently, uh, they investigate these types of claims uh, fairly thoroughly, right? And so they say they looked into this, and then they told Vogel, uh, my impression is a week or two later, that and all this time Vogel had no idea this was going on, and I was watching these videos and then commenting on how fantastic Vogel was at bringing forward the evidences showing how the Mormon Egyptological apologetic was so shallow and just blatantly incorrect. YouTube told Vogel not to worry. We don't see any reason to take your video down. Now, Vogel, uh, he does read Reddit, but he doesn't really participate there. He posted his first Reddit post. I have not read that post yet. I probably ought to. I probably should have before jumping on here tonight, right? So, but uh, he he posted it on Reddit, and he's also posted it on other message boards where his response truly is as damaging to the credibility of FAIR as his rebuttals of FAIR's heroes, John Gee and Kerry Moulstein. And he basically said, well, you know, FAIR, real scholars would just actually take the information that I presented using the evidence of the Kirtland Egyptian papers, the Gale, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, G-A-E-L. And in my uh, analysis of what the alphabet itself was emphasizing, and in my demonstration of the grammar and alphabet and its relationship to the uh, the facsimiles and the rest of the translation manuscripts of the Book of Abraham itself, um, I've pretty much shown how you are messing up the chronology. And because of that, you're not taking Joseph Smith's chronology seriously at all. And so you're uh, mixing and matching, you're taking what Joseph Smith said he was doing early on, and you're putting it back here behind this particular event in the chronology in order to justify a particular pet theory you want to propose, which in your own minds, you Mormon apologists think is going to save Joseph Smith, right? So Vogel said, fair, you scholars need to sit up and take notice. Come on, fair, sit up, take notice. This is a really important point, and it's so beautifully typical of Dan Vogel. He said, real scholars are not going to call for the suppression of other scholars' responses to their claims. Real scholars would welcome the opportunity to, one of my very favorite words, clarify not only their own position, but clarify how their use of the evidence is a better use of the evidence than my critique. And Vogel told them, rather than calling for suppression, we would like to see a rebuttal. Direct, straight, 
succinct, to the point, spot on response. And so my reason for doing this special live session tonight is to simply re-emphasize this event. Now, of course, this really doesn't surprise us, does it? I, I mean, honestly, none of you can possibly be surprised, especially if you have watched Vogel's responses to both Guy and Mulstein. You can't possibly be surprised that this is how Fair would handle it, can you? I mean, look at how they handled uh, well, I'm going to bring this in too. Jeremy Runnels on the CES letter. The Book of Abraham was one of the really bad, tough, testimony-killing issues, right? So, of course, the CES director, thinking that his authority would be able to overcome any of Runnels' objections or, or difficult questions, he went stone-cold silence once Runnels gave him that CES letter. And he said, oh, you want to know what my problems are? Here they are. Well, of course, <laughs> he's not going to respond to those issues. He can't. And it's obvious why, because the church does not train its CES, quote, scholars into the finer nuances of actual evidence. The theme always has been behind the church brainwash, or I mean education, is to instill faith, right? Is to, to get you not to uh, think through and compare this with that, or to, or to uh, see another angle. They're not interested in any of that noise. We know that now. Being inside apologetics or being inside the church, that's a little bit tougher to see. So, you know, we can and we ought to have a certain uh, type and amount of charity for those who are still struggling or who are completely drinking the Kool-Aid and just have an absolute firm testimony, right? That's okay. It doesn't bother us at all because we understand that rather than being taught how to think, they're taught what to think, right? And we all have discussions with this particular theme. And so from a Bayesian approach, we can now ask a better question and uh, I hope you guys are having fun. Hey, Pat, good to see you. Patty Cakes here. Mormon neurodivergent. Yeah, I've talked to you, Elisa. Welcome, welcome, Mark Crispin. So you're all chatting. So what we have seen is this question we can ask is a very excellent way to look at another angle that helps broaden our perspective. And the question isn't, well, is fair right or wrong? No. Time out. Stay calm. That's almost become a tertiary level question in importance. It, it, it's just not all that vital anymore. The better question, rather than, well, who is right or wrong? Who has the stronger argument, Dan Vogel or John Gee? Even that kind of question can be put to the side, don't ignore it. Of course, no, we don't have to ignore it, but put it to the side for just a moment. There's even a better question to ask yet. And with the Bayesian inference thinking, I love how this has changed the way I ask questions. And I haven't seen anyone talk about this Vogel incident with YouTube and fair threatening Vogel and, and telling YouTube 
take it down and YouTube refusing, the best question, and this is my bias, I admit it, sure, but I find it helps me see a much more important nuance that is well, well, well worth exploring, and it is simply this. We see fair, and, you know, you, you don't know, this is speculation, right? We don't know if they're angry, right? Uh, I suspect they're a little bit concerned. Uh, that would probably be the uh, the better emotional uh, feeling, the response from Fair is far more concern than outright anger. Uh, because, of course, uh, Dan Vogel really put the shackles on John Gee and Kerry Mulstein. Fundamentally so, man. And, of course, Fair gets that. Yeah. My supposition is that there's quite a few people who probably circled back around from watching the Vogel uh, video, even if clicking on it by accident, and began asking Fair, hey, uh, have you seen this have you seen this guy responding to one of our heroes, John Gee? And so what is it he's talking about? H how come he is disagreeing with John Gee, the Yale-educated Egyptologist under the world's greatest Egyptologist at the time, Robert Rittner? How can you possibly disagree with John Gee? See, my suspicion is it's these kind of folks who are genuinely wanting to know, uh, okay, what gives? What kind of a response are you going to plan on giving this Dan Vogel guy? Yeah. what? How are you going to rebut him? Is John Gee putting together a video that he can show how wrong Dan Vogel is? My suspicion is that it is this kind of a feedback that helped Fair make up its collective mind to just simply say, let's get this thing off the air. Yeah. Because uh, we really don't want to get into a long protracted war over the actual evidence of the papyri and the translation and all of that, because then we've got to start giving them broader and better context, right? And so do we really want people to start looking into this with a fine-tooth comb? Because, you know, the backyard professor did that. We lost him. Bill Real did that. We lost him. Kevin Graham did that. We lost him. Paul Osborne, and now Brian Howglid and Dan Vogel. And, I mean, so many people are really screaming now that the Book of Abraham is the tough issue that is clobbering their testimony. So if we were to uh, get into the nitty-gritty of this, uh, we may not be able to give testimony-strengthening discussion. So let's try to kill this thing. Let's try to get YouTube to take it off the air. My question is the the fair response. We now know they did try to suppress Dan Vogel's video. Here's the question that I asked. Given that response, is this the kind of response that I would expect to see someone give and pursue if they were sure of their actual knowledge and sure that they were interpreting the evidence in the best way that pretty much all of the broad field of, say, Egyptology, biblical scholarship, Mormon and non-Mormon studies alike. Is this the kind of response we would expect from someone who knows the material and knows that the material supports their points? That's the question I asked. And the answer is, no.
Of course, it's not the kind of response you would expect from someone who, in a lawyer's brief, as it were, was presenting evidence to the court, and they were certain, look, this is evidence A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, and M, and all of this evidence points to a very accurate and qualifiable translation by the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. Uh, through Revelation, if you want to take it to that extent, right? That is not, the response of fair is not the response that you would expect from someone who is sure of themselves. Now, the rebuttal by Vogel to this event is exactly the kind of rebuttal we would expect if the so-called, quote, antagonist of fair was certainly comfortable, familiar with the materials to the point to where he can explain those materials in a step-by-step -step process so that even fifth graders can understand those materials after all. I understood them, and it turned me on so much that I produced a 20-video series on getting clear on the Joseph Smith papyri. That's how excited I was. And now I would point to that series of videos, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I gave it my golly gosh darndest best effort to become crystal clear, and I've had several other scholars, not, not just John Q. Public, but actual scholars of this explicit subject say, nice, you get it. You do get it. Way to go. Good job, dude. So... Uh, Brian Hauglid is one of those on my Mormon Stories podcast that I had a, a few weeks ago. Apparently, Brian Hauglid was absolutely mesmerized with it. He said so. And he said, wow, what a fantastic presentation. This is the clearest explanation I've ever seen or heard. So my response would be to agree with Dan Vogel. I am completely confident. And no, nobody, again, just we're trying to head off the, uh, you know, the, the future ad hominem attacks we're going to get from apologists or the future straw man arguments where they would come back and say, yes, but you guys are too arrogant. You think you know it all. None of us are claiming that we know everything there is to know about the papyri. That's just simply bogus. None of us have ever claimed that. But we know enough to understand the basic issues that Joseph Smith's translation just, unfortunately, cannot be right. He blew it. He was, he actually, in my opinion, based on uh, what I've read with the contemporary eyewitnesses, and uh, things like that through the course of, say, two decades or whatever, uh, Joseph Smith probably did take advantage of this pristine opportunity. I mean, talk about a gift from heaven, right? And I don't mean the gift to translate languages. I mean the papyri coming to him from an outside source. What a way to shock his followers into testimony building and realize, wow, we have a real prophet and this guy is the real deal. He can translate these languages. You know, nobody in his day ever tested him. Nobody in his day ever even questioned him. I mean, it was just a foregone conclusion. Joseph Smith, the seer, look, he translated the reformed off the gold plates. He's going to translate the reformed off of the papyri, of course. I mean, that, that goes without even comment, hardly, you know. That's just as natural as breathing to the early Mormons. That was their response to Joseph Smith. We have the benefit of 200 years of hindsight. And 
how everybody was reacting and interacting and testing. Uh, and only because after such a big whoop-de-doo was made, and in 18, what was it, 1880 or so is when it was canonized. So it became truly seriously official. And then some of the world Egyptologists, Theodule de Verriard and Augustus Seyfarth, some of those started to notice. Of course, then some of the papyri after Smith's death ended up in museums and you know, elsewhere. And so the world scholars could begin looking at it. And they, of course, began making pronunciations against the translation. And of course, you know, the 1912 situation with the Reverend Spaulding, well, that shocked the Mormon scholars. They said, what? You're disagreeing with the prophet's translation? You can't do that. See, it had never even entered their heads that there could be something wrong with it. Right. So the, the question becomes what, okay, is this the reaction we would expect from someone who was really confident in their interpretation? Of course not. No, of course not. Look, uh, in the interview with, uh, with Scott Gordon, uh, John Gay was very uncomfortable. He really was. He was he was ham hawing around. Well, that kind of looks like this, but it sort of it doesn't really match that. And so, yeah, I don't know where it came from. Uh, gee, don't ask me. Uh, he was just guessing. Well, that doesn't give you, boy. When you compare that interview, and and I would encourage you to do that. Truly, seriously, don't worry about fair getting more views than they deserve. Compare the John Gee interview and his uh, his attitude, his approach, his confidence level with uh, Dan Vogel, and you will see a stunning contrast. Uh, compare John Gee's confidence with my own now that I really do grasp the issues in my series of videos and put my series of videos with Dan Vogel's series of videos on the book of Abraham and just compare and see who is helping you understand the issues of the papyri better, the Mormon scholars or those of us who want clarity instead of faith promoting pap and pablum. The comparison is right there for everyone to look at. Isn't that great? I mean, seriously, that's kind of cool, you know? So, so that's my one phase. Now, the second thing that I wanted to uh, talk to you about is uh, <laughs> the interview, the BBC interview with Jeffrey Holland. The one where the church felt like he got hijacked, you know. He got mohawked. He wasn't expecting those rather straightforward questions, you know. He wasn't able to control the interview like they always do with Mormon groups, whether they're adult firesides or these youth rescue camps or whatever it is they propose to do, where they get to buffalo everyone, the BBC interviewer just was not impressed with the authority angle whatsoever. He asked very straightforward, pointed questions of Jeffrey Holland, and he put him on the hot seat. And you could see not only the body language, but the response. Responses Holland gave when he was asked those pointed questions. Again, the beauty of the Bayes theorem approach to asking better questions is simply this Holland's response to the papyri 
and the book of Abraham to this BBC man when he asked them, well, isn't the translation false? I mean, haven't the world's Egyptologists also translated this same papyri and found that it is not the book of Abraham? And Holland, well, well, now, um, okay, now, look, look, now, don't quote me. I don't know how the process worked. I'm not sure of the method or any of that. I don't know anything about the Egyptology. I don't know Egyptian. I don't know the language. But what I do know is that what got translated got translated into the Word of God. Now, the question is, is that the kind of response we would expect from someone who actually knows actual knowledge of one of their own scriptures? And the answer is no. Holland is obviously floundering. But because of his apostolic station, yeah, he has to present the final, well, what got translated, got translated into the word of God. Well, the question is, what got translated, Jeff? And the answer is, the papyri. But we know with actual knowledge today, again, the benefit of hindsight here, we know not in any sort of uh, enemy ridiculing or mocking manner, we know what got translated was not translated accurately. So that begs the question, how on earth can an inaccurate translation, now the crazy thing here is, with the actual Egyptological evidence, we know that it got wildly mistranslated if there was any translation going on whatsoever. And there's the million dollar question, you know. Uh, they, they, the Mormon apologists, have been virtually forced into a corner of finally advocating all of this. This is the one area where we can genuinely test the issue. We do have the original. You know, the gold plates were taken back by the angel. So we can't technically test the Book of Mormon direct. But with this one, we can. Seriously. And with this one, we have. Seriously, right? So the translation just does not work. The evidence is just against Joseph Smith. Let's just be clear. Yeah. So the theme, of course, he, he, they they feel virtually forced to try to uh, make it a testimony building event. And it, it simply isn't. It can't be because there is no translation. <laughs> Nothing got translated, Jeff. You know, what is the king's name? In fact, it's only number three. That's a stone-cold serious question. Joseph Smith claimed to know. He claimed the hieroglyphs gave the name of that king. In fact, it's only number three. You know, he claimed the hieroglyphs, in fact, it's only number three, identified several different of those figures. He turned Anubis into a slave, which is just stupid. So there's no real actual translation. So what does Holland mean when he says, well, what got translated got translated into the word of God? Does that actually save the case? I would propose no. Not any more than 
despair trying to get rid of Dan Vogel's response to their hero, John Gee, would save the case. It would not have done anything of the sort. So we know that there has been a shift. And at first it was somewhat subtle, you know, for the first, well, I mean, the shift came in 1967, of course. Yeah. When the papyri came back, of course. Yeah. But I mean, within Mormonism, uh, not, not necessarily to the outside world, but within Mormonism, there has become a shift from the offensive, missionary, positive image, wholesome living, and, oh, it's glorious to be a Mormon. I am a Mormon campaign on YouTube, etc., etc., from being on the offensive, positive. The shift has put them on a rather iffy, and, and if I can uh, uh, put it this way, an ugly defensive that is not convincing. The Bayesian way to ask so that we can become clear is is the reaction to the blunt evidence and to the blunt description of not only the evidence, but the process and the final solution? Is that what we would expect to see if Joseph Smith had gotten it correct? And the answer is not at all. So what is this evidence leading us to is the really nice follow-up from asking the better question, is that the kind of evidence we would see if this is the case? What does the evidence show? On a charitable note, Joseph Smith blew it. On an uncharitable note, Joseph Smith was using this opportunity and this particular evidence because he knew he wouldn't get caught. Nobody else knew it. So he could go ahead and invoke heaven down to him, keeping him up in the top lead, right? The man to follow, the man to believe, because God is revealing this powerful knowledge. It's so good, we're going to canonize this translation as scripture that for all the world of me, I give me any other conclusion I can possibly come to. Give me any other way I can word this, you Mormon apologists. That screams con man. Uh, and I am being charitable. So Jeffrey Holland's what got translated, got translated into the word of God, doesn't cut the mustard either. And it shouldn't for the Mormons. Now, of course, come on, all of us, most people who watch this video, most of you wonderful people who are in the chat, hey, fine business operator, good to see you, man. Uh, we already understand that. For Mormons, it is a difficult situation they're in. Their leaders appear to not be able to stem the tide of the overwhelming clarification that has shown the con. The, the problem issues, 
they're serious because it does call into bold relief the realia of the concept that they have started from the very beginning, that of revelation. The problem with that approach is it condemns God and his knowledge himself. Because Joseph Smith always put the biblical aspects of the papyri out there as the basis of what the hieroglyphs were about. And there is no biblical material. There is no biblical culture in the papyri. And so if God is the one that was revealing that through the Urim and Thummim or through inspiration or whatever, uh, that means God didn't even know. Now, that's pretty serious. That's fatal. That's fatal. So you can kind of understand why there is so much trepidation for the church and its defenders, scholars, apostles, prophets, whoever, why it's so hard for them to even want to interact. And this is why it shifted to a defensive stature. We begun to hear a lot of sermons, comments on, you know, stay in the boat, don't rock the boat, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. They ask the rhetorical question, well, if you leave the church, where will you go? You see the shift there to a defensive uh-oh, we're in trouble. We have to convince those who are still in to stay there, those who are leaving and who have left. We're not so sure we're ever going to reach them and get them back. So we had better really push the missionary. Now, again, and I hate to pick on you, Jeffrey Holland, but let's be perfectly frank. You did utter what is as close to a prophecy in Mormonism in the last within my lifetime, within the last 60 years, as anyone who has ever made a pronouncement just a few short years ago when you prophesied very, very soon, within a year or two by a specific year, we're going to have 100,000 missionaries out in the field. And then COVID struck, and it thwarted the number. It did not improve it. It thwarted it. It went down and down and down. And furthermore, we never saw anything coming from any of the prophets or apostles about getting prepared for the plague. It just came on. Then, and I hate to do this because it makes me look antagonistic. All I'm doing is with the benefit of hindsight, again, I'm kind of recapping the major events within Mormonism on the response is the prophet, seer, revelator, and or translator, Russell M. Nelson, called for a worldwide fast to stop or at least thwart COVID. It did nothing. The numbers just kept right on going up. And then he called for a second one many, many months later, and it also did nothing. Now, the Melchizedek priesthood power in Salt Lake City, with all of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, with their fasting and prayers and use of priesthood, could not stop this plague. And yet we're told Enoch, with that same priesthood, was able to move rivers in front of his enemies and call down mountains upon the enemy armies. He had the power to actually manipulate the physical world. And that's in the Pearl of Great Prize, in the Book of Moses. We don't see anything like that today. And we're not asking you for a sign. We're just simply elaborating on what we're seeing from a particular vantage point, having both current knowledge of the actual situation involving scriptures, prophecies, 
revelations and the benefit of hindsight, which clarifies how we can use this knowledge to make better decisions. And that's the point. It does help us make better decisions. In the process, because of the nature of the evidence, the way it's been going, the Mormon apologists are making what appear to be worse decisions that's going to backfire on them. And people are going to begin to ask, why on earth would you try to do that? Instead of just show how stupid and weak Dan Vogel's arguments are. Why, what are you so scared of? I mean, if you don't want us asking those kind of questions, you got to quit reacting so damn stupidly to the issues when they come up, like videos that I produce, that Dan Vogel produces, that Paul Osborne produces, that Mormonism Live produces, that John DeLynn Mormon Stories produce. And you got to begin to react, respond, and dialogue. But that's not ultimately what they do, is it? And again, I hate to keep beating a dead horse, but here's where we can get a stronger bearing with our approach so that we can make better decisions. The Bayesian thinking would have us ask this question this way. It would say, is that what we would expect by way of response from someone who has an actual testimony of the truth is the attempts to suppress uh, the worry about, well, I hope you don't think I'm a dodo. That's just pure ego. Someone who actually does converse with the Lord God Jesus Christ wouldn't give a flying flip about what a mere human reporter thought of him. But Holland was terrified that he was going to come across as being a dodo, and then he stupidly said so. And then he said, well, I don't understand the process. Well, what do you understand then? You're in the position where you love to leave the impression that your knowledge is higher than all the rest of us on all subjects. You have access to the ultimate living encyclopedia of total knowledge so that if you don't know it, it's a piece of cake to get it. Just ask for it. Joseph Smith did, and several dozen of those doctrine and covenants sections show Jesus instantly giving a revelation. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't too sacred that we don't talk about it. That is doublespeak for we no longer have revelation. That's why you hide behind that silly charade. The rest of us see it clearly. You're not fooling the world at all. The only people you're convincing is those who already believe, and those are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer because of the way you're responding from a defensive stance as opposed to an actual knowledge, testimony, truth stance. We don't see you having that. We're not trying to be antagonistic. We're just letting you be aware, you Mormons, that your church has shifted and it's directly related to not only the evidence, not only the amount of the evidence, but also the quality of that evidence, which is demonstrating that it's not evil, it's not wicked, to being doubting and skeptical of sensational claims being made these days. Your actions and reactions do not 
reinforce your supposed superior knowledge. What got translated got translated into the word of God. Literally is senseless based on what we actually do know. Your own Mormon scholars, when they translate the hieroglyphs, Jeffrey Holland, at BYU, the ones you control and want to come to faith-promoting conclusions, yes, those guys, when they translate the hieroglyphs, they actually do translate the hieroglyphs into the same information that non-Mormon Egyptologists translate also because that is what the hieroglyphs actually say. So when we see your apologists struggling to try to make sense of this and defend Joseph Smith and the rest of you church leaders back up and say nothing and do nothing and take no stance and remain neutral, you've already lost the war. It's amazing you don't see that. But that's the way it is. That's what the rest of us see. So this is why I wanted to do this live session, to try to, uh, you know, basically just kind of throw it out there, uh, share my impression of the response I, I've always wanted to do, you know, to describe my impression of the dodo response of Holland to that BBC interviewer, uh, that gave the game away. It really did. I mean, second worse was when Elder Oaks made the student during the Mark Hoffman fiasco, when the student asked a question about the church being deceived and having to purchase the materials to hide them, Oaks got all hot and bothered and offended and threatened the student and said, you ask the question I want you to ask, and that's the one I'll answer. That's not how this works. Oaks, you gave it away back then. <laughs> you know, yeah. Holland, you gave it away. And now again, fair, you also have given it away that you guys are on the defense with actual no hope of ever getting back on top and in control because faith can't change the probabilities. Only evidence can do that. And the evidence of the papyri is overwhelmingly powerful against Joseph Smith's claims. And yet you canonized it. But none of you actually believe it. You certainly don't quote from it. You don't use the papyri to teach the truth of the biblical doctrines. We're not so sure you even believe the biblical doctrines. You've had that loophole well as far as it's translated correctly, and you always ever only go to the Book of Mormon, which absolutely has no fundamental ground basis in reality like the Bible does. I, you know, after so many non-home runs and no score, uh, the rest of us, I believe, are entirely justified in being seriously skeptical. But to see your current responses coming from a center of doubt yourselves and confusion and fear in trying to shut up everyone else so that you and you alone get to dictate truth and all others must follow, or else you can judge them as being weak-minded, lazy learners, and guilty of wanting to sin, and the Holy Spirit is going to leave you, and you'll end up in darkness, etc., now we we begin to see that for what it is a mere brainwashing and and that's not a word i like to banty around but that's what it that's what it is and cults go to that technique now and i know that's an offensive word to mormons i get it i understand i don't sit there and scream out cult but if you don't want to be known as a cult Damn it, quit acting like one. But what else do you have? 
You know, you're a filthy rich corporation. You almost don't need any of us and our money anymore. Heck, you can make billions on your own. So is it about the truth anymore? There's a lot of questions on that also. That's for another, you know, that's for another discussion, another video. So that's essentially what I wanted to say tonight is just basically elaborate on uh, what I am seeing is becoming a trend. More, more and more uh, responses from, from all uh, levels within the church, leadership, state presidents, bishops, apostles, 70s, prophets, as well as the scholars, as well as the enthusiastic, dedicated amateurs, those who love to bear their testimony every month in fast and testimony meeting, etc., because they've been told that's where the truth is, and they have been coached into believing that without any testing whatsoever. These uh, responses are becoming more and more steady, and they're less and less convincing of the type of responses that someone who actually knew the truth would be making. So we have a lot of skepticism. That's the issue. And the way to, to get through that, of course, is to carry on in a dialogue fashion. You don't want a dialogue. You want to dictate. But the Internet is virtually going to force that uh, dialogue issue would be my contention. And we're not out to uh, destroy people's lives and wreck their faith and all that. No, we want clarity. We're tired of the mud, and we do believe, and we have what we consider to be quite strong evidence that we have been systematically lied to for decades. The Joseph Smith Papers is a great start but you don't get your accolades on that like you hope you should because you've been forced into that. And so you grudgingly are not hiding stuff anymore. But see, that still leaves that veneer of skepticism, in my opinion, entirely justified, right? So this is our approach at this point in time. So thank you all for, for coming in. Uh, I just wanted to, hey, Reed Russell. Hey, good to be. I want to talk to you guys for just a few minutes. Peter Higgs, how you doing, bud? I just want to say hi to all of you. Uh, Lorena Cornella, Cormella, Comella. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. My, my eyes. Hey, Maven. Very good. To, thank you. Thank you for coming. I loved your discussion on Mormon stories, girl. Sincerely, my wife was deeply impressed as well. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for showing up. I appreciate you being in the audience. Patty Cake is always great. Trevor Luke. Welcome, my dear friend, Trevor Luke. Yeah, quit blushing, Maven. You're a rock star, girl. Fine business operator, all of you. Uh, yeah, Thursday now. This was an unannounced one. You'll want to watch this from the start, though, Trevor. I'm trying to reinforce a reinforce a, a point that I felt was worth making. And, and I think all the rest of you will, too, when you see it. So I'm going to try. I hope I don't knock myself off. Uh, if I do, I apologize. I want to try to back up and see more of the comments so that I can interact with you. Reed Russell, it's good to see you, brother. Elisa, always good. Ruth Smart. Oh, Lamb Chop's here. Thank you, Lamb Chop. Peter Higgs, yeah, from the land down under. You boys are awesome. T.O., thank you for showing up. Good to see you again. Lorena Cormella. I, I said your name. Sorry if I keep repeating. Mark Chrisman. Absolutely. Um, I, I hope, I hope tonight makes sense to you. Uh, I'm just in the mood to, to gab and blab. And I had so much on my mind. I'm trying to clear the air so I can do a real good job on the council of the 50 on Sunday. 
uh, I am rereading a lot of that information, and that is an absolute stunning, fabulous, interesting aspect. It's a segment of the Mormon history that, and and it's interesting because the Joseph Smith papers put out videos uh, talking about this particular volume that came out when it came out, and they were touting it, and they admitted this is stuff you've never read before. This has not been available. The church hid it from us. Now we get it. And of course, they're doing it in a faith-promoting manner, yes. Um, I'm going to do it in a more realistic, uh, historical approach and show why ultimately, which is unfortunate for the Mormons, it's very fortunate for the world, but it's unfortunate for the Mormons, uh, the Council of Fifty did not succeed in their ultimate objective. And there was an ultimate objective. That slipped out. They let the cat out of the bag. So I'm looking forward to seeing you guys Sunday night, six o'clock, so that I can share that uh, kind of information with you also. So uh, yeah, it looks like all my dear and good friends are here. You guys are all awesome, man. Hey, uh, Trevor Luke, if you're still around there, uh, just dawned on me. I wanted to ask you, Yes. Thank you, you guys. Uh, Trevor Luke, did you ever make it to Greece? Let me know, would you? Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about that. Give me a call one of these nights if you can. If you're in Greece, great. Enjoy it. Sorry, I couldn't get there. I'll try to get somewhere somehow soon. <laughs> in the meantime, you guys, hey, be good. Have fun. Do well. Sleep tight. And uh, I look forward to seeing y'all on Sunday night. Sunday night, 6 o'clock. It is going to be an incredible eye-opening uh, analysis of the politics and the history that was hidden, and all the Mormon scholars virtually have acknowledged that, and why it was hidden. And I get it. They should have hid it. I'd never thought I'd hear myself say that, but wow. It's pretty shocking what they were saying and wanting to do. Sunday night, I'll expose it all. So you guys have a good night. Thank you for joining me. It's been wonderful seeing all of you. Oh, 13, 14 likes. Thank you. That's very kind. Looks like I had up to 50 of you. That's awesome. For an unannounced night, that's pretty good. Thank you so much for showing up. I hope I didn't waste your hour. I don't think so. Look. If you missed it, if you got in late, start back at the front and come through. Uh, I think there's a good point here that I'm making, I hope. Uh, I'm making it. I'm remaking it. It was already made by uh, several others. So, Okay, you guys, I'm going to sign off. Thank you so much. Have a good week the rest of the week. Have a fantastic weekend. It is Memorial Day weekend. I'm still going to come on Sunday night, though. So don't forget the Memorial Day weekend either. It's a great weekend to be alive, isn't it? Okay, you guys, I love you all. I got to go. Yeah, thumbs up to you too, Reed Russell. Lamb chop, I'm, I'm excited. Okay, thanks, you guys. Appreciate all your friendship. You guys are absolutely a blessing and you're wonderful, period. Don't argue with me, I'm right. I'm going to pull the old man authority, right? Yeah, whatever. Shut up and get off our screen. <laughs> See you guys all Sunday. Yeah, baby. <laughs>